The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is a very special guest, Dee Williams. Dee is the she's written a memoir, and the title of the memoir is The Big Tiny. Her memoir, The Big Tiny, is the story of how she built her own house with her own two hands. And listen to this, all 84 square feet of it. So that's a tiny little house. Uh, her story's been featured on Good Morning America, NBC Nightly, CNN and CBS, so she's very, very well known, this tiny little house. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dee. Oh, I'm psyched. Thank you so much. So uh, a tiny little house, the big tiny, you're building this tiny little house, and and you built it, what, 10 years ago, while everybody else is adding on to their houses and building bigger houses, and you're kind of going in the opposite direction. So how did that happen? Well, uh, there, there were many things that had clicked into place for me, but probably the most um, notable for me was landing in the hospital with a heart attack. I was 40 years old at the time, and uh, at, at the at the time I had a you know a big three bedroom bungalow, 1,500 square feet. Maybe that maybe maybe that isn't that big for for a lot of folks, but it was big for me. And uh, I had a you know 250 thousand dollar mortgage. And I woke up in the hospital and uh, all of a sudden went from being a pretty active uh, younger woman to being a cardiac care patient and trying to figure out how to best uh, sort through what was going to happen next with uh, my heart and my life. All right, so t- all right, you're in the hospital. You're in the hospital bed. You have, you're 40 years old and you have a heart attack. Um, was it then that you decided... Hey, obviously, what am I going to do about my life? How am I going to change my life? Did you go back home, get rehabilitated, and realize, well, you know, I can't handle all of this, you know, this huge house and the responsibilities and the mortgage, and I'm going to build myself a 84 square foot house? Or what? How did it evolve? How did the process evolve? So you got well, to the yeah. point. Yeah, there were a couple of things. You know, I I, uh, I remember coming home from the hospital, and this was after I'd been in for a, a while. I had had some uh, procedures done, and I, I got home with the diagnosis of uh, cardiomyopathy or congestive heart failure. And I was sitting in the living room, kind of looking around at my house, and I realized that uh, it, it just didn't make sense. You know, what am I going to do? Go back to work and you know try to crunch away and and chip away at my 30-year mortgage uh, when what I really wanted to do was go visit my family and uh, hang out with my friends and play with their toddlers and, you know, shoot, I would have hiked the Continental Divide if, if my heart could have handled it. You know, I wanted to be in my body for as long as I could. 
And so I was I was starting to question whether or not my big house was, was really something that I could afford to continue to maintain. And then uh, not long after that, maybe a week later, I was sitting in my doctor's office, and I read an article about a guy who had uh, built a tiny house on wheels. And it was it was about 100 square feet, and I read this article. I ended up ripping the page out of out of the magazine and you know, sticking it in my pocket and going home and sticking it up on my refrigerator. And every time I would look at that picture, there was something in the idea of building a little house and, you know, moving into something so small that, that seemed attainable and, and made perfect sense. Like, somehow, if I, if I built this little house on wheels, all of a sudden, you know, the horizon would take a longer stretch. You know, I would... I would suddenly be able to kind of do everything that I wanted to do and at the same time maintain at least a part-time job to pay my medical bill. So what's your job, what was your job and then what was the part-time job? You decided to stay at the same work or you decided yeah. to... Yeah, I was lucky. You know, I'm, I'm a hazardous waste inspector for the state of Washington. So um, when when my health got bad, they... It let me work part time, so and I'm I'm still doing that. I feel a little bit like I'm getting away with something, but um, uh, they've been really kind about uh, letting me work 24 hours a week, and that way I, I maintain my health benefit, and uh, that way I also have a lot of experience doing this work, and I love it. So you know they they get a, a pretty good expert doing the stuff that I do, and uh, it's a, it's kind of a win win for both of us that way. The how did you go about, you know, building and construction and, and all of that, it seems not having that experience. So, you you know, you tore out this article and some guy lived in a house that was 100 square feet. And then, because, you know, people are listening thinking, well, you know, is that for me? Could I live in an 84 square foot house? I, I don't think I could. And I want to talk about some of the, the positives, but there have to be some negatives too or there's, there's things that you give up when you live in an 84 four square foot house. Um, I, I ask you a lot of questions, I guess, but uh, so. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. You know, uh, as far as, you know, having a chutzpah to take something on that I had done, I, 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 there was plenty of that for me. I mean, I, I took up rock climbing and actually threw myself at the rock without having any experience at all. Um, or, uh, you know, starting my job, I became a hazardous waste inspector and kind of learned as I went. Uh, with some really good training. And, and it's the same with carpentry. You know, inside each of us is a little builder, I think. It's part of our DNA. You know, not, not that long ago, we all needed to know how to, you know, tie sticks together to stay warm and dry. And um, so I think I think I had that. I, I had also studied architectural engineering. I had grown up playing with my brothers and building stuff with my dad. So I, I had some experience. And, and more than that, I, I had a, a certain naive fearlessness that um, <laughs> probably propelled me propelled me forward through that project faster than uh, than I should have gone in some cases. So, but you're a risk taker. I mean, I'm listening to you because you describe, I mean, the hazardous waste and job that you had. And, um, yeah, you had experience with your brothers and your father. But still, you are a risk taker, obviously, and you took this risk. Well, describe the house. What is the house like? What is it like to live in? You know, what kinds of rooms do you have? What facilities are available? Yeah, are there? yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, if you if you walk across the, the backyard where it's parked and you approach it, it, it looks like a little summer cabin. 
or low pointy roofs, the metal clad roofs and cedar siding and uh, a couple of windows. Um, it, everything it, everything looks really kind of natural. There's no metal or uh, plastic. You walk up, take a couple of steps up onto the porch and open the front door. And uh, on the left, I've got my little kitchenette, which is uh, essentially a, a short kitchen counter with a, a sink and a one-burner stove. To the right is my uh, toilet. And above you is the sleeping loft, so you can see the, the floor joists for the sleeping loft. Take a couple of steps from there, and you're standing in what I, I call the great room, which is, it's really great. It really is great. It's like, it's like a, a seven by seven foot space uh, with a skylight above your head and an 11 foot ceiling it goes up to the pointy part of the roof. And uh, you can kind of see over and into the loft a little bit. Uh, it's about seven feet above the floor. So, you know, all of a sudden you've got this expansiveness with the windows and everything is knotty pine. But do you ever get claustrophobia? Do you ever, are you ever sitting there thinking, I need a little more space than this? You described you have a toilet. Do you have a shower? Do you have a bathtub? Or neither? Right. And neither. I have, I have no shower, so I shower at work. I shower at the gym. I shower at my friend's house. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely things I don't have that I couldn't fit into this little tiny tic-tac of a space, you know? But doesn't um, that make you feel, does it ever make you feel stressful? Let's say a shower, maybe not a bathtub, but not having a shower that you have to depend on being at work or a friend's house or, yeah, you know. it's, a, it's a major pain in the neck. I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it, you know, it's not, uh, there are times that I want to take a shower and I can't. But the thing is though, Catherine, you know, you know as well as me that, you know, having any kind of shower facility is kind of a gift. You know, most of the world lives without any sort of water source, and there are lots of people that live with, you know, maybe they have a shower, but they can't ever get hot water, because it's, you know, at least my old apartments, you know, I was lucky if I got hot water sometimes, so, you know, I, I kind of skip over those parts, you know, I kind of get uh, past those moments where I'm kvetching and complaining, because, uh, you know, I can, I can hold pretty clearly in my hand that life is, is good, regardless of whether or not I can take a shower at the moment I want to or not. I had a, a different experience, maybe a similar experience. I think I had read somewhere that you went to Guatemala. Um, I don't know if that had an impact, because you, you mentioned, there, you know, in developing countries, oh. they don't necessarily have enough water to take showers. And I had lived in South America for a while and didn't have a shower and didn't have hot water. So when I got back to the States, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm always, I don't necessarily need hot water. I have it. But uh, I do appreciate the water and being able to take a shower. Um, so Yeah, that, that sense of gratitude, you know, is, is something that uh, has been a little bit surprising for me. You know, when I, when I set up my house systems and the lack of a shower, it was simply because I couldn't figure out how to get water into the house and then get water out of the house in a way that wasn't going to impact wherever I was living. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to construct tanks under the house and I didn't want to drain water across a lawn wherever I was. So I just couldn't figure it out. And uh, so I, I didn't put a shower in. And then over time, you know, the thing that, that has come to me and, and the thing I've really appreciated is, yeah, from my time in Guatemala and I've got a friend, Gina, who's traveled all over, you know, northern Uganda and in other areas of Africa. And, you know, she'll send these emails back and explain kind of what her situation is. And it makes 
uh, it makes my backyard look pretty privileged and easy and comfortable. And uh, so not having a shower feels feels a little bit like, uh, this is as bad as it gets. I'm doing pretty darn good. But Dee, what about your context is different? You live in, in, in Washington State, so people around you, most of them, I assume, do have showers and other things that perhaps you, can't, you, know, you don't have in your own house, which makes it a different cultural situation because you're obviously very different with living in that 84-square-foot house. Um, what about things like paintings and books and other things that you can, personal things that one can have in their house. Let's, if you have a bigger house, or do you have any of those things? Uh, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, my artwork was probably one of the hardest things to let go of. Same with books. You know, I love books. But um, I was able to farm most of my artwork work off to friends. So they, they actually have it up in their living room now. So when I go over to dinner, I can, I can ogle you know, what I used to love and still love very much. It's just uh, arranged differently uh, in, in somebody else's house. And, um, and as far as books go, you know, I've really started to view my public library and local bookstore as kind of an extension of my own bookshelf, in part because I took a lot of my books to the used bookstore. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, think, I think there is a little bit of awkwardness around not looking like everybody else every once in a while. But I've, I've kind of gotten over that. I mean, I, I have a job for the state, state worker. You can't get any more normal than that. I do a lot of paperwork. You know, I'm of average height, average age. I'm so middle of the road, it's crazy. Uh, and so you, you know, kind of walk into the backyard and see this, you know, tiny cuckoo clock of the house. What about friends and what about family? I mean, would you have them, can they come and... <clears throat> And is there room for them, for you to entertain or anybody to stay overnight? I mean, yeah, or if they yeah, do, I, what about I, privacy? Yeah, we, we, we've worked it, we're, worked it out, you know. Uh, my, we, we have uh, in the backyard, the, I converted to part of the garage, did a beautiful remodel uh, and turned a part of the garage into a studio. For My friend Annie is a, a therapist, a counselor, so she sees clients there. And uh, as part of the studio, we have a, a pull-out bed in the bathroom. So when my parents come to visit, I, I kind of kid around with them and say, oh, I'm going to put you in the garage. <laughs> but it's, it's actually a studio, and it's very nice. So I've, I've got a place for, you know, friends and family to sleep when they come to visit. Um, and inside my house, you know, I've got, I've got plenty of room for, for us to hang out and have dinner and have a beer, uh, as long as people don't mind balancing their plates on their lap and, you know, sharing forks. I'm kidding about that. I have plenty of silver. <laughs> so you, uh, I guess, well, by having this extra, as you call it, a studio, does that have a shower in it? No. No. So when, like, you know, when my folks have come to visit, they, they either don't shower uh, or, you know, we'll get a hotel, they'll stay at a hotel or the shower at the old Aunt Rita's house you know, yard I live behind. She's got two bathrooms. She doesn't mind if, if we pop in to take a shower there. Does it sound crazy? Well, I, no, it doesn't it sound crazy. Odd. It sounds odd, but it doesn't <laughs> sound crazy. It doesn't sound crazy. I'm trying to get a picture of it. And also I want to, you could, if, for listeners, if you want to find out more about Dee and also about the tiny house, you can go to uh, padtinyhouses.com. Um, 
but I'm just trying to, I want to kind of get that emotional feel. You know, I'm a social worker, really? like what it's like and how it affects your relationships and, and, and with individuals and family yeah. and friends and, and the outside world, too. I mean, I understand, like, as you talk about in the memoir, financial freedom, uh, you, you know, you don't have to worry about a mortgage, you know, you don't have to be responsible for all the stuff that we accumulate. And to me, yeah, that's really positive. Right. But are there any, what would you say, like, what are the, there has no, to be I, some I, downs, you know, kind of stuff that doesn't work. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the biggest challenges for me was letting go of my uh, my sense of autonomy, and and it's different than than actual autonomy. But my sense of autonomy was that I was self sufficient, independent, pulled myself up by my bootstraps, you know, self made woman. Uh, nobody could tell me what to do. And I, and I went from that sense of myself to suddenly being a cardiac care patient with a cardiologist who told me not to go running anymore with a, a ticker that I didn't know, you know, when I was going to go into VSIP or, you know, what my life expectancy was like. So I, I feel a little bit like I got the rug, rug ripped out from underneath me and that sense of independence started feeling a little shocky anyway. And uh, moving into the backyard was a perfect opportunity to learn to let go a little bit and start to see that my happiness and uh, even even the logistics of my day-to-day are very, very contingent on being a part of the community. And once, once you start to see that you're a part of it, it's kind of like uh, my friends who have started having kids, you know, and all of a sudden they go from being single, being married or partnered to, to having kids. And that expensiveness, it comes with a little bit of growing pain, but after after a little bit of time, you can't imagine that you were ever so alone. And uh, and, and so that's that's kind of the experience I've had in the backyard and you know, the logistical challenges of not having a shower and having kind of a thimble full of electricity through my solar panels, it, it feels really workable. Uh, and, and not only workable, but... I feel like uh, my life has gotten so much better because I am a part of, you know, taking care of an 84-year-old uh, woman. I get to cook for her. I get to help her get out of bed, put her into bed sometimes. I get to take her to the doctor's appointments. I get to do, uh, you know, run kids to baseball practice from, uh, you know, my other neighbors. So, you know, things have gotten more complicated, and for me, uh, they feel a lot a lot better too. So you have time to connect more because you're not bogged down with all your, I go back to it, all the stuff that you have to be responsible for. So you really do connect more to other people. It kind of sounds like when you, you know, the doctor tells you you can't run again and and you you didn't want to take on that victim mentality. uh, And so this certainly was a way of, of, uh, of not doing that, it seems to me. You aren't going to be a victim to your heart disease, or your. How is your health now that you've been in this house for ten years? It's good, you know. It's stable. My heart function kind of ranges between about sixteen percent and forty percent, depending on when they do the tests. So uh, I feel I have good days and bad days, and you know the way the way my cardiologist suggested that I look at it is that. As long as there are more good days than bad days, I'm doing, I'm doing good. Sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're doing, I mean, better than good. Uh, but who do you think, 
I mean, who would be, are there people who are really interested in doing what you've done, maybe for different reasons, but would like a smaller house like yours, for instance, cost? How much does a tiny house cost? Well, I think a, a tiny house ranges, and yeah, there are lots of people that are interested in building small for a lot of different reasons, whether it's economic or environmental, or they're upside down in their mortgage in their in their big house, but they have, you know, college kids returning home, so they want to expand their footprint a little bit. Um, and it ranges depending on how big you go and what the systems are and what the materials are. So it's, uh, I, I've seen tiny houses, less than, you know, 200 square feet that are all the way up to $60,000, you know, uh, and then my house costs 10000 bucks. So you get a big range depending. It all depends. Just depends. Yeah, so it can be anywhere from 10000 to sixty. Seventy thousand dollars. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's a lot less than than uh, most of our average houses, average size houses. So, if right. one wanted to do this, is there a way to live in a tiny house for a little while, or are there places to go to so that you could get a sense of whether or not you know you'd want to do this? Yeah, there there actually in in Portland, Oregon, where where Pad is, we have a, a tiny house hotel. So. Uh, uh, you know, it's actually, I think, they're kind of billing it as the first tiny house hotel in the state. And uh, folks can come and try on a long weekend, you know, hanging out in a little house on meals. Um, you know, and there's there are other rentals out there. Uh, I, I recommend to folks that they, you know, if they really want to try something on, to just move into, you know, cut off a room in the house. Cut off somebody, you know, the back bedroom that you never really use until guests come and see how often you really need to go into that space and then winnow it down a little more and winnow it down a little more until you, you kind of figure out what, what space you need to use and what your interests are and how your body moves through space. Everybody's different. Yeah, so don't go cold turkey. Don't necessarily give up your big house and buy a tiny one, but just see which rooms you use. That's not a bad idea. Most people, or many people say, I, we, I never go and use my living room. I'm always in the den. We use the den, the kitchen, and one bedroom. Those are kind right. of the basic rooms that you know, you'll hear people talk about. So it's kind of what you're saying. See if you can live in those for a while and then pare it down. Yeah, exactly. Same with, same with stuff, you know. Start out with a lot of stuff and see if there's a way that you can take a grocery sack uh, a day or a grocery sack a week uh, to Goodwill uh, or drag it out to the curb. It'll disappear. I'm a great, uh, this is sort of an advertisement, but I uh, 1-800-JUNK. Yeah, and exactly. I've seen those. I've seen those ads. Their trucks are all over. I call them up and they come and they take everything. And then it's true. Once you get into it, you kind of want to clear everything out and just yeah. rid yourself of all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. I, so, you know, I, I can see how you, I don't know that I could do what you're doing, but um, do you have, uh, do you have actually other friends who have done it, have actually moved into tiny houses like yourself? I, I have a lot of friends who have, moved into tiny houses. I also have friends who have invited tiny houses into their backyard. I mean, my business partner had our friend Gina, who I, I mentioned earlier, you know, travels all over Africa and other places uh, as a part of her job. And she built a little house. And, you know, we have to have that as another model of community living. It was very intentional. And uh, that's happening all over, all over the U.S. and Australia, Ireland, lots of other places are doing that. 
What about the house? Is it mobile? Uh, can, mobile? Can you um, move it? And because it would seem to me that perhaps you could use it like a, you know, sort of like an RV. Is that possible? Well, yeah. I mean, you can. I mean, these houses are heavy. They're they're built like a regular house, so there there's a lot more wood and insulation. Uh, you know, they're they're built for year round kind of functioning, so you don't get a bunch of mildew and moisture buildup like you would with an RV. So they're heavy, which makes them harder to kind of pull around. So they're mobile, but uh, you know, you get about five miles to the gallon if you're going to take it on a vacation. I have a question about the legalities of, of these houses. Is, are there any restrictions in terms of how big a house or how small a house can be for people to live yeah, in? There, there, yeah, there are. I mean, the, the, the difference is like the difference between what we call ground-bound, so you build a house on a foundation, uh, and there are a lot of codes that restrict how small you can go if you're going to build something on a foundation that you plan to habitate. Um, and then the, if, you, if you're going to build on wheels, you kind of step away from that residential building code and the restrictions around that. But you enter another world on how your city or your county deals with vehicles, so RVs and travel trailers. And, and the city is going to view you as an RV, whether you're, you, you call yourself an RV or not or whether or not you, you know, from the Department of Transportation are viewed as a, an RV. So different uh, cities and different states obviously have different zoning restrictions and all of those kinds of things. Um, I, I want to, your book, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, and what about the website? Um, I mentioned one website. Is that the website to go to if we want to know yeah. more about you and Tiny Houses? Yes. Uh, there's lots of good information, lots of resources. We do workshops and other stuff. Not to sound like an advertisement, but it, it is a really great resource for people who want more information about going small. And it's pad, P-A-D, tinyhouses.com. And there's a bunch of information about The Big Tiny, my book, there too. The Big Tiny, and that's Dee Williams. That's her book, padtinyhouses.com. And um, so I, you, you, do, you do go around talking to people and, and helping them or assisting them or how do, what, what are the... Yeah, so, you know, our workshops are geared towards giving people, kind of drilling into some of the questions that you've asked about showering, what do you do with your water, um, the social connections, you know, where do you park, how do you network and, and figure out how to make those relationships work, um, what's legal and what isn't. What are the DOT restrictions if you're going to take it down the highway? Uh, how do you engineer it and construct it to withstand, you know, something like, you know, 90-mile-an-hour winds, and uh, it's kind of like a, a hurricane and an earthquake at the same time once you start dragging it down the highway. How do you engineer it to address those stresses? Those are the, the kinds of resources we like to give people. Uh, and then also kind of help people think outside the box a little bit more. We've gotten so kind of culturally acclimated to having a certain kind of lifestyle and, and certain things that we have to have in our life. And so we like, to, we like to kind of give people a, a good encouragement to rethink what's important in life and how to take a bite out of your own unique, beautiful life before you find yourself old, hopefully, or sick and uh, reevaluating whether you've lived the life you wanted. 
Yeah, opening up different or new options for people. We have to say goodbye. I'm going to take a break right now, and our next guest is coming up. But Dee Williams, Dee Williams, author of The Big Tiny, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to meet you by yeah. radio. Great to talk to you. Well, we're going to take a break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me uh, this morning is Kevin Soling. Uh, Kevin is an American writer, a filmmaker, business owner, producer, and uh, has has produced several documentary films. We're going to be talking about uh, two of those this morning, The War on Kids and The War on Drugs. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kevin. Great. Thank you, and I appreciate uh, you having me on. Great to talk to you. And I understand you're also a part of Mensa. You're a Mensonian. <laughs> yeah, I don't really advertise that much, but yes, that is true. <laughs> Well, I'm very impressed because I do have one of my sons is a Minnesonian, and he too doesn't advertise it. So I, I would think oh. if I were, I would be advertising it. But anyway, so a filmmaker, that's what we're going to talk about, two of these films that you've done, The War on Drugs and The War on Kids. Which one do we want to start with first? I mean, I'm really interested in The War on Kids, which is a documentary film about the American school system and how schools have been transformed into what are, and I'm quoting, effectively prisons. This is uh, I, what you, the, you know, your film is about. So let's, let's talk about that. Our schools have been transformed into what are effectively prisons. What does that mean? Uh, basically, uh, the, I mean, schools to a certain degree uh, have always been prisons. Um, it, it's really just a matter that uh, they, they're hiding it less. Uh, once you have a, a compulsory environment and you're taking 
uh, a segment of the population, uh, in this case on the basis of age, and, and placing them uh, where they're not permitted to uh, to leave, they have to be there you know, at certain times, you, you already have a, a prison-like environment, just, just the nature of compulsory schooling is that. In fact, when compulsory education was first instituted in the 1850s, the first place where uh, it was introduced was in Massachusetts, and they had to uh, get the militia to uh, take the children away from their families because there was such resistance to the whole concept of, of, of forcibly taking uh, children away. Um, the situation that's happened since uh, is that uh, the environment has just become, you know, increasingly more oppressive. Uh, so it's, uh, it, I mean, basically one of the, 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 the fundamental definition of, of uh, fascism, if you really want to, you know, go that far, is, is, is a uh, place where dissent is completely suppressed and loyalty is demanded. And, and that's, that is the, the, the fundamental, you know, components of a fascist system. And that is also a, uh, you know, the precise definition of, of what takes place in schooling. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's really extreme. I mean, that, that's, it seems to me, you know, a very extreme point of view. And your film has received critical acclaim from the New York Times, Variety, Huffington Post. Uh, those are fairly not you know, conservative, I don't want to say conservative, but middle-of-the-road um, uh, newspapers, and, and, uh, but yet they have, um, you know, acclaim, you know, really have uh, been not too... Yeah, Variety, it's, 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 you know, the film has, I mean, you know, to shoot my own horn, the film has, <laughs> has received, you know, fairly universal praise. And, and it, yeah, it, it praise is, is the is word I'm trying to think of, yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the things that, that I am both proud of and regret a bit is, is, is actually was, I, I, I didn't want to make the mistakes of, of Michael Moore where uh, he champions certain noble issues, uh, but he gets very sloppy with uh, his you know, facts. He's more of a, yeah, I, you know, he's more of a filmmaker than a, than a documentarian uh, just because he, you know, uh, he, he doesn't really adhere to, to strict fact-checking. Um, I, I spent about eight or nine years uh, making sure that every statement was was documented, at least where it was expressed as fact. And you know, certainly, there are there are some moments where opinions are expressed, and that those, those moments are quite clear. Um, but so, Kevin, uh, give us examples, like spe- specific examples in the film. You know, you're talking about our schools, our prisons, almost like a fascist kind of institution. So take us through it. How, you know, very specifically, are we talking about elementary schools, middle schools, high schools? How does it work? Different schools in different parts of the country? Um, I assume, you know, I assume are somewhat different. So, you know, really getting specific about how this all works to effectively make our schools prisons for our kids. Sure, and it, it, it is. It is you know, one of the things that I was very careful of actually was to, to demonstrate and show that this is a feature that, of, of all schools, uh, because all schools are, are autocratic, and um, many people think that the problems are, are you know urban or inner city, uh, and, and certainly some things are worse there, but but some things are better also. Is the was the other surprise? Um, for instance, uh, the degree of conditioning is actually worse in the more affluent schools. And the reason for that is because the children generally know that if they endure and survive uh, what takes place in the school, uh, you know, that they're going to, you know, be well off regardless. But it's not actually the school experience. The, the you know, one of the things I, I uncovered is that, you know, many people talk about the achievement gap 
and you know try to figure out uh, what causes that. And, and the fundamental reason is it has to do with coping skills, and and it's coping with this oppressive environment. And and all schools everywhere, regardless of where you go, are are these autocratic environments that are governed by social efficiency, and that's the only way they can function. But that but that means is schools have to process you know hundreds or thousands of students, uh, which means that they uh, have to create one-size-fits-all rules. So things for high school students, you know, you have the same exact rules. They have to be at certain places. They have the same obligations, you know, when you're, when you're a senior in high school versus when you're, you know, in kindergarten or first grade. Uh, it just becomes uh, more inappropriate, those controls, you know, for someone uh, who is in high school. It's uh, so the oppression is uh, it feels worse, but the, the fundamental feature or, or uh, guiding principle of all schools is that all students must take orders in a docile manner, which means that uh, the uh, you know you have to sit down and shut up and take you know take orders, or or you can't get to you know what the, the, the supposed lesson plans. Uh, that's you know that's axiomatic, and. Once you realize that, you, you also realize that that's actually the primary lesson of schools, you know, is, is, is this order and discipline and, and having to adhere to, to rules that are, that are completely arbitrary, but the punishments aren't. And the punishments, you know, the, the film documents are, are getting much more severe and kids are going to prison for, for things that aren't even, aren't even, you know, on, on, on the law books. You know, if you're talking back to your teacher, it can, can result in, uh, you know, or throwing a spitball or things like that. Uh, a drawing, uh, you know, have, have resulted in, in children being charged with crimes, pointing a, a, a chicken finger at another child in, in a humorous way, Kid, kindergartners playing cops and robbers and using their fingers. You know, these things have resulted in suspensions or expulsions, and, and you know, sometimes, you know, the, the police get involved in things that are just absolutely ludicrous, but it's not, these aren't isolated instances. We're talking thousands of students. You know, that was are, my question. Are, you know, is this the rule? Is this something? You, you, well, you answered the question. Thousands of students. I mean, I think of it as more um, anecdotal, or maybe there's just a few instances of where that happens, and maybe it's happening more. At least you read about it more uh, as a result of you know all of these school killings, and it seems they get stricter and stricter. And you do read about a seven-year-old who, as you say, he, uh, pretended that he had a gun with his fingers and gets expelled from school. Um, but I thought that that wasn't the norm. I thought that that was the exception. Um, I mean, it depends what you consider norm or exception. It, it, it's, it's happening increasingly, and those incidents aren't, are, are far from isolated. Uh, you know, I, I'd say, you know, depending on the school, you know, it, it varies as far as the numbers. But what, it, what is the norm is that, the, that what people need to realize and appreciate when they're evaluating school and school policy uh, people look at, at, at the, the actors. They look at the teachers. They look at the administration. They look at the students, um, and they try to you know figure out you know who who or, or the curriculum, and they try to figure out who who or what is is to blame for for schools not working. And and that's you know one of the the rare places where there is agreement on on the left and the right is is both sides agree that that, that there is a problem and there's evidence you know, when you look at. Uh, the uh, objective studies on literacy in the United States that schools, uh, you know, are not working. Um, and what it comes down to is, is none of those parties are directly to blame. Uh, but the problem is the institution itself. It's, it's when you create an autocratic system, it poisons everything that takes place in Kevin, it. Kevin, how can we do it differently? Is there a way? Or, I mean, after having done the film and uh, filmed this doctor 
documentary, obviously you must have ideas uh, about what the alternatives might be. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. And in, in, one, in one case, you know, I, I, I'm always hesitant to, to go there, although I, I will. Uh, and, and I'd like to present, a, you know, a caveat about that, because uh, I, I, I think that's really essential, is, is to understand um, the notion of alternatives. Uh, when slavery, after thousands of years, you know, of, of human history, was, was you know, finally uh, recognized to be uh, a social evil, um, there wasn't a concerted appreciation of, of of alternatives. It was, you know, this is fundamentally wrong and, and it and it needs to, to end. And and today we're still dealing with the repercussions uh of of this, you know, evil system without any perfect solution. And there there is no perfect alternative, but there is an understanding and appreciation and that that's you know, I'll get to, you know, the second part, but but it, it is a matter of recognizing that the institution itself, that mm-hmm. this design of, of keeping keeping up a segment of the population absolutely powerless with no control over their lives, uh it, it affects, you know, their desire to, to learn. It it turns all of the curriculum is because it's it's imposed on them, uh is um it, it leads to anti-intellectualism. It leads to a rejection of uh, of reading, of, uh, of of wanting to learn, because it's all associated with this this uh, you know that that it was the oppressors that tried to make them do this, and and the nobility of that act is 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 bound with uh, you know the you know the, the sinister nature of of that kind of treatment and oppression. So you know when you look at why kids forget, it's it forgetting is an act of resistance. You know, kids don't want to read because, you know, this is the only thing that they can do to, to you know, to turn uh, around this oppressive environment. Bullying is, is another thing where everything that you hear about bullying is a complete lie because bullying is, is, is also caused by this environment. And the more autocratic and oppressive the environment, you know, the greater incidences of bully that you'll see. And this has been uh, shown uh, from, uh, from research, but no one looks at the environment. And all the anti-bully programs that are out there are, are designed to avoid uh, aggressively dealing with the environment. It's always, you know, keep, you know, schools must be the same, but, but we have to deal with bullying, which is actually a symptom of this environment. And, and so you're, you're, it's basically like giving uh, an aspirin to a person with brain cancer. You know, it might help their, their headaches slightly, but you're not actually dealing with the fundamental underlying problem. Uh, what you're saying your is we're dealing question. with the individual, uh, say the bully, um, and we're we don't look at that individual in the context of where he or she is coming from? Is, is that what you're saying? We don't look at the I'm whole system? I'm saying that the school is, that, that that kind of environment is a catalyst for, for bullying. So the more oppressive the environment, the, the greater incidences of bully, bullying that you'll see. But I have a question now. I grew up in a, another era of schooling, and I think it was probably more oppressive than it is now. But at the same time, we had less bullying. I don't remember, let's say, in elementary school or middle school, of anyone necessarily being bullied, uh, maybe teasing a little bit, but certainly not bullying. And and the schools in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s were much more rigid and authoritarian. So how does that fit in? Uh, because the school environments then were much more homogenous. So the whatever... Uh, oppressive components. Then, if you look at the, the, the there, there are multiple forms of oppression. Uh, that kind of oppression was less evident because it was more culturally consistent 
with uh, what you, you know, because of the homogenous nature. So they could, you know, the, the authoritarian environment um, was expressing rules that were consistent with, with the greater population's experiences outside of the school environment. So you're saying the more diverse the schools are, and we have a more diverse culture within these authoritarian schools, that's part of the why we have more bullying? I'd say it's a component uh, of, 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 how the oppress- of how the oppressive arrangement um, becomes, uh, manifests itself in a way that, that is more uh, salient, that the, the oppression is, is, is more out of context with, with the experience that one would have outside of the school in, in a more heterogeneous environment, yes. This all sounds very depressing and very upsetting, and and uh, I I still I'm getting back to I know that there isn't a uh, an answer or uh, a you know that we necessarily have the answer to to reverse this I guess, but there must be some ways in which it, the school system can be changed or or evolved, and you know getting away from this the structure that you're talking about that produces this kind of negative behavior and lack of creativity in the kids. And um, so do we have any kind of answers for that? Yes, actually, there are many, there are many other alternative models out there where there's, you know, either democratic schooling, you know, so you still have, you know, an organized in, in environment, but it's, you know, a place where there's self-directed learning, where, where children are, are in control of their, their education, but there are, uh, there's an adult presence where, who can, who act as mentors. And I, I, I think uh, it's, it's basically having teachers reimagine themselves uh, as being in a supporting role where they introduce children to new ideas and, and, and give kids, uh, treat children also as, as, as individuals. Uh, you know, some, some kids need a lot more structure and guidance than others. Some need, need less. Uh, all of them, you know, need need some kind of uh, you know support, um, and that support should be available. And uh, it's you know, and 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 there are numerous programs that the trick, you know, that the, the thing is not to think that that all kids have to, you know, can fit into to one box, and to appreciate that that different uh, children have different needs, and and those needs need to be supported. And the tremendous resources that go into putting, you know, into schools right now are, I believe, sufficient to create that kind of, of, you know, to make that kind of support available. It's it's a matter of not... I mean, there's there's a convenience factor to schools for the adult population. They they serve as babysitting factories, and... um, and but what about, that, the, I'm going to interrupt you, know, you, because what about the teachers themselves? I mean, you're starting with teachers who have been gone to the same schools that you're describing, these prisons, um, schools that have been effectively prisons. So that's where they're coming from. So the teachers themselves have to be or come from a different, don't they have to come from a, a different place academically? And um, otherwise it's almost impossible for them to be able to teach this kind of curriculum that you're describing. Um, I think many, many, I mean, you have multiple, you know, types of, of mentalities for teachers. I think many teachers come out of, of ed school with this, you know, noble idealistic vision 
where they want to change things and then they get crushed by the system and uh, you know and, and many of them leave and there's just you know remarkable turnover in in, in that industry uh, and it is an industry um, but so I, I think the impulse for for many people who go into teaching is that they they do want to make a difference and and they do want to reach out and they do want to be that that person who you know who uh, um, you know, who, who really makes a difference in the lives of, of, of children. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's the, you know, them adopting a model that doesn't involve them in a position of power. It, it's really the, the, the power component that corrupts everything. And, and it's, you know, the teachers are grading, the teachers are also providing, uh, you know, the whole emotional life of the child is it becomes dependent on the grade that they receive. So it's, it's conditional. It's, it's on this, you know, external, they don't, you know, they can create something that they're very satisfied and feel good with, but, you know, about, but, uh, you know, that, that can be undermined by, you know, by, by a, this third party that really has no, no, you know, uh, should not have that kind of authority. Uh, but the, need to see themselves as, as, you know, in this support role, which they, you know, I, I think that transition, I, I think for many would not be hard given, you know, where, where many of them are coming from. Certainly well, you there, mentioned there democratic who, schools. What democratic schools, for instance, and there are some, um, and I assume they would, there are, would be a role model for what you're describing, but so what are the democratic schools that, that do this? Uh, specifically, are these private schools? Um, no, they're actually. I mean, I, I mean, I guess they're they're uh, yeah, they're private on, in, in some capacity. But there there's uh, there's a website, uh, alternativestoschool.com, that that lists uh, you know them. But one, one of the one of the most effective and best is is uh, one uh, Sudbury, and uh, you know the, the children are. Uh, it, it's been you know very successful. Uh, the kids. You know, they're uh, just actually look forward to you know going to school if their if school is canceled because of weather or something. You know, the children are actually upset, um, and uh, you know they've you know it's it's an environment where you know they're responsible for their learning and they have uh, you know a a, a supportive uh, faculty that helps them achieve that. And if someone you know isn't right for that environment, the children actually have you know the capacity to. To, you know, to intervene and decide who who is going to be, you know, there, um, you know, supporting their learning. Well, let's and, talk about uh, high school because one of the things, obviously, is you from the moment you get into at least ninth grade, your resume, your resume, your resume has to, you know, you have to have a good resume in order to get into a good college, and that seems to be the focus of at least most uh, middle class parents. Uh, they want their kid to get into a good school, so they get. I think really sucked into this whole authoritarian way of of teaching, and uh, how do you sort of I don't know how does they That's a fit? wonderful yeah. question, and and actually one of the things you know that that uh, that you learn is that schools, that colleges, universities, the most prestigious ones, Harvard and and others, uh, are are happy to to accept. Uh, unschooled kids, unschooled children are, are ones who who you know they they do not. Uh, have it, it's not a homeschooled situation. They're 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 literally on their own and able to, uh, you know, completely direct their own learning. Um, I, I've seen kids who are working on constructing, you know, electric cars at the age of 13 because that was you know, where their passions and interests, you know, lie uh, lay. 
and that uh, they uh, it, it just you know remarkable achievements uh, from from the unschooled. Never encountered a single unschooled child who who could not you know read or write uh, effectively. Um, uh, you know, so and and but it's it's a it's a matter of um, you know you know what, whatever the parent you know finds to be uh, appropriate for their you know, for their child, and uh, so you know, there, there's still there's there's still adult involvement and supervision, and 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 you know, in, in these kinds of things, it's it's not about you know surrendering all, um, you know, all authority there. It's you know, it's, it's working in conjunction uh, to create the most you know supportive learning environment. But uh, but but all all the schools, you know, historically, you know, are are willing to accept uh, people with you know with different backgrounds. Schools generally like diversity. They like people for you know if 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 the uh, the student is 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 clearly you know educated and and has skills, uh, all of these schools will will accept them and you know in whatever fashion that they you know that their their policy is. But uh, you know it, it's it's not a requirement that that children have to go to compulsory schooling to, to get into universities, even the top ones. In other words, that's really that's a myth. Uh, they they don't have to do that. They are looking for creative kids and kids who have done things differently. And so you don't really have to get as a, you know um, sort of sucked into that mentality, which most parents do. Um, yeah, we only have. And understandably, yeah. I understand where that's coming from completely. You know, that's you know. Um, you know, I, that's actually you know if you're looking at you know things that are encouraging and positive. Uh, I, I think that there's there's been uh, much greater access to higher education, you know, uh, today than than in the past in terms of you know course you know schools offering courses online and and you know mostly the online learning revolution. Yeah, we have to say goodbye. We didn't get a chance to talk about the war on drugs. We'll have to do that next time because this was uh, uh, I really was uh, fascinated by your take on the. Uh, war on kids uh, and their schools being effectively prisons. And I do. I don't know if I mentioned this in the beginning, but this film was the this documentary film was named the best educational documentary by the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival. So that's fantastic, and uh, you've gotten all kinds of recognitions for your documentary film. So love to have you back again, Kevin. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And people can go to thewaronkids.com and, and learn more. WarOnKids.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on World Talk Radio and Voice America. I uh, hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.